0: Good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. Uh, And if you're here visiting, welcome. We're glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, It it is my birthday, and I'm wearing my birthday shirt. Actually, Uh, a year ago, our staff team gave me this shirt for my birthday, and today I was finally man enough to take it out of the box and put it on. My little daughter came and saw me, and she said, "She and she just started laughing in joy when she pinks her favorite color." And my Almost three year old son came up and said, Daddy, you're a girl. <laughs> and I said, No, son, actually, men wear, you know, pink shirts. And he said, Well, if you put a skirt on, you'd be a girl. <laughs> so I left it at that. <clears throat> in any case, uh, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We're uh, in Mark chapter 5. We're studying. This semester, a series on Mark chapters 1 through 9, and talking about the fact that in Mark, we see a picture of Jesus, who is the King who has come, and week in and week out, as we delve into Mark, we're looking to see how this King who has come has claim on our lives, what He came to bring, what He came to do, how He came to change us. And so this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump right in. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and and ask that you would give us ears to hear. We pray that you would open up your word to us, for it is uh, the power of God unto salvation. Um, we, We may well come this morning excited and glad to be here and eager. Many of us may come this morning not quite sure why we're in this room and not quite sure what to think about opening up the Bible, and with no expectation that you would show up. Would you surprise all of us with your goodness, with your grace, and your immediacy here? We ask this in the name of Jesus Amen. Mark 5, beginning in chapter 21. Verse 21, excuse me. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord and it's given to us uh, for our good and for his glory and so to it we turn. I'm struck by this story. Um, it, it is vivid as vivid as many of the accounts are in, in Mark and, and in the other gospels, uh, th- this strikes me as one of the most poignant. As we see two people in incredible need coming to Jesus to come and somehow, maybe, possibly, just possibly, be able to meet them at their moment of crisis and moment of deepest need. And they, they both come in fear, wrapped in fear. We're going to see that this morning. But they come to Him uh, turning from that fear in faith to Jesus. So what we're going to see this morning here in this passage that Jesus the King calls us to trust Him with our lives. And so to continuously turn from our fear to a growing faith in him. We're always to be turning from fear into faith. And we see, we see that here in three ways. First, we're going to see the trap of fear. We're going to see the turn of faith and the touch of the king that makes all the difference. Okay, first, the, the trap of fear. Again, we've got two people in the grips of fear here, and an and, and, and incredibly... Um, vivid uh, and powerful story. First, we've got this woman who comes to Jesus in the midst of a crowd. It's, it starts The story starts off telling us about Jairus, and then it moves to this woman and comes back to Jairus. But this woman who's in the center of the story, uh, who has a physical ailment. She, she, all the text tells us she's bleeding. The, the implication is here that she has an unstopping menstrual flow that has been going on for 12 years. Now, it's important that we get what's going on here in order to understand just how dire this woman's situation really was. For one thing, she's in a great deal of, of pain and has been for 12 years. If you look uh, at, at what Jesus says to her when he heals her in, in verse uh, 34, he says this, um, that he says when, when she is healed that, that uh, you are healed of your disease. Now the, the word that gets translated is "disease." There it sounds a little uh, generic. The, the word in Greek really means the it, it's, it's a word used for uh, the sting of a whip. It's an affliction of an intense pain. You know, When he comes and speaks of her healing, he says she is being released by something, the physical pain of which has had her in its grip for for 12 years. She's suffering. It says that she has suffered at the hands of doctors for 12 years, that she's taken whatever money she has, and over those years, she has become impoverished as she's gone from doctor to doctor, hoping someone could heal her. Her money is gone and nothing has worked. In fact, it says that her pain and suffering has only grown in those years as she's gone from person to person seeking help. She's fallen into financial ruin. Everything is falling apart for her. But for her, maybe even most damaging of all, she lived in a culture uh, where if you were to go back and look in Old Testament law, especially in the book of Leviticus, you, you would see all these things for worshipers of God that they were to avoid in order not to be ritually, ceremoniously unclean. If you, could, if you touched a dead body, you became unclean and had to go through a purification rite. If you had bleeding like this woman did, you you were unclean until it stopped and you had to come through a purification rite in order to enter back into the normal worship of God's people. So for this woman, because it never stopped, for 12 years she was not able to enter the temple of God. She wasn't able to worship with God's people. She was religiously on the outside, unable to hear the comforting words of her God as her people gathered together to worship. And the way uncleanness worked, that culture, is when uncleanness and cleanness came into contact, uncleanness always wins. You have a small child, you put clean clothes on them, and you send them out into the the mud in the backyard, (laughs) who's going to win? The the mud does. And ceremonially, it's the same thing. So when an unclean person touches someone who is clean, they become unclean as well. Consequently... No one wanted to touch this woman for 12 years. No one wanted to get near her. No one wanted to be defiled by, by that. You see, she is in physical pain, but she's also in um, she's socially dislocated. Everything about her life is fragmented because of this affliction that she has. Mark tells us all this because he presents her as she is, a woman to be rightly pitied. She has gone from disappointment to disappointment to disappointment. And she finds herself the edge of a very real trap of fear. Because for this woman, disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, what does it take for her to try one more time? To get up, to hear that Jesus is in town, to hear that He is a great healer, to come into a crowd of people who don't want to get anywhere near you, to snake your way up through the crowd and to come and touch Jesus' cloak Just at the very hymn from behind, thinking if I just touch it, maybe this time I will be clean. Maybe this time I will be healed. Maybe. But that fear that she must walk through of, am I willing to face the possibility of disappointment one more time? But she goes, she comes next. To this moment, this crisis of fear—it was—it fear, took—it took her walking through fear to even get into this scene. But then she comes and she touches the cloak. She has what she has come for—this healing. And then Jesus turns around and says, "Who touched me?" And the moment of crisis for her has come. What is he going to do? Is he going to rebuke me, an unclean woman from? For coming and touching him, not only a clean person, but a holy person? Is he going to display for this whole crowd my entire life history and tell them exactly what my problem is? Am I going to be utterly exposed and ashamed? Why did I come? Is she going to listen to her fear, or is she going to respond in faith? second person in the story is this, this man, Jairus. On the one hand, we've got this woman who is a social outcast. She's uh, in poverty. She's at the very bottom of the social rung and on the other end, we have Jairus, this very well-respected man in his city. He was one of the rulers of the synagogue. He was the, the, the religiously polished person. He's the person that his community would come to if they had a, a question about the Bible, about, the, about what it means to follow God and, and ha- how to be in relationship with him. He was, he was a respected member of community, an influential person. And he, too, comes to Jesus, and he, too, must face this fear that could potentially keep him away. Think about this. We have uh, this man in all his respectability, and yet here is this itinerant healer and preacher named Jesus who has come. Is he going to go to him too? What if Jesus is just a fraud, and he, the synagogue ruler, comes and embarrasses himself, throwing himself down at the feet of Jesus, asking for something that he can't provide? What if if that causes the people around him in his town to to lose respect for him, that he would lose the power and influence that he has. See, some of his hesitation may well come, for all we know, from a sense of pride for him, but the flip side of pride is often fear. Not just pride of who I am and look at me, but what would happen to me if I lost that? What if that was taken away? And for this man, he comes risking that pushing through his fear. But he too, like the woman, comes not only in fear, but he comes to a point of crisis in his fear. Because just as Jesus heals this woman, turns back to go with him, there's a messenger from this man's house that shows up and says, she's dead. You don't need to bother the teacher anymore. What's he going to do now? Jesus turns to him and says, don't be afraid, just believe. Just believe. And now the stakes are that much higher for him. Do I still hope? Do I still listen to the voice of Jesus? Or do I just look and say, thanks but no thanks. I came to ask you to heal my daughter and it is beyond your reach now. And turn and walk the lonely road home again. What's he going to do? Is he going to respond in his fear? Or is he going to respond out of faith? This man, we read the same story in Luke chapter 8 where we're told that this man's daughter was his, his only daughter. And maybe you know a moment where you've had that kind of desperation. Um, if you have children, you know that nothing like, nothing like your own children open up the door to fear in your life when things go wrong. I had a taste of that this week. Um, our son, John Mack, uh, I woke him up from a nap and he, he had a fever. Let's just say it, I, I didn't know you could have a fever that high. <laughs> And still be conscious. So we rushed him to the doctor, and uh, my wife was away on an errand. She met me there, and we got to the doctor, and they, they were able to bring his fever down. It turns out he had strep throat and this unusually high fever, and he's okay. But I tell you that just to say I, I had that moment of it, but it it had a it. it it was softened somewhat because, you know, here I am thinking, you know, modern medicine is great. Like it's, it's, a, it's a fever, but the doctor's ten minutes away. Like we're going to get there. There's, you know, this is going to turn out okay in the end. And it might not have. Sometimes it doesn't. But you know that sense we have of we have this sort of medical safety net that we usually feel pretty good about. But this guy, none of that. His, his daughter is ailing. It says she is on the verge of death, and he knows that there is no hope for her. Unless something miraculous happens, he comes with all his fears right there in his hands. What's going to happen with these? And for either Jairus or this woman, they were on the verge of this trap of fear. Are, are we going to listen to our fears? Or are we going to turn, continue to turn to Jesus? Because the trap of our fears is that they will keep us from Jesus. The woman, when he turns and says, who touched me? She could have just slid away. Through the back of the crowd. Never coming face to face with him. When Jesus turns to the man and says, Don't fear. Keep believing. He could have said, No. I'm done. And walked away. What about for you and for me? What are the things that we fear? Maybe that have us in in their grip even now. Um, maybe, Maybe they're financial fears. Things don't look good and we don't know how they might possibly even get better. Maybe they're job fears. Maybe we've lost a job and not so sure that God could ever provide. Maybe we desperately want a job and we're about to graduate. And can God provide that? Maybe we're on the edge and we know we could be let go any day. Maybe it's just the fears of the relationships of your life. Maybe you have this fear of what's going on in your own marriage, but you think this, I don't need somebody to speak into my marriage. I don't need to open the door for that. Because what could happen then if somebody really knew what was going on? Or the fear of, I can't admit my struggles. People knew this, they would run away. Afraid somehow that our past or even our present struggles are just somehow too dark and too deep for Jesus. So we're tempted to turn away. Maybe afraid of... Our doubts, our lingering doubts, even for those of us who name the name of Christ. Maybe you're afraid if you come and bring your requests and your needs needs to God, all you're going to hear is radio silence, just nothing, nothing, as you call out. Because we too feel this trap of fear. But you see the story doesn't end here. We see too, not only the trap of fear, but for these people we see the turn of faith. Both for Jairus and for this woman, in in, in the midst of their struggle and this crisis of faith, when they could walk away, instead they walk closer to Jesus. When he says, who touched me? The woman, it says that she, with fear and trembling, she does turn. And she comes, and she tells Jesus the whole truth. And this man, Jairus, when Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe. He says, Okay. And he walks with Jesus back to his house. How do we do that? How do we do that when we find ourselves on that edge of fear? We know we're supposed to have faith. We know we're supposed to listen to Jesus. We know we're supposed to trust him. What does that look like? let Let me just lay out four things that I think we see working here in this passage. And by working, I mean at work here in this passage. As these people resist their fear and instead turn to Jesus. First, it involves us recognizing our need. If we're going to be a people who turn from our fear into Jesus, we must first recognize our need. Both Jairus and this woman were in a point of utter desperation. They knew that they had no resources that could possibly cover their struggle. This woman, she's out of money. She's been suffering for 12 years. No doctor can help She has nothing that might be able to bring her healing and reintegration with the people around her until she hears about this Jesus. And she meets him when he uh, turns and says, who touched me? She recognizes her need and that she has nowhere else to go. So she leaves her fear behind and she turns. And Jairus too. He comes asking for healing for his daughter, and all hope seems to be lost. He came desperate, and now he is beyond desperate. And he knows that there is nothing in his power that he can possibly do. And out of his poverty of ability, an ability to control his situation, an ability to make his own life work and his daughters, he turns to Jesus. And here's the thing. If you don't or won't recognize your need for Jesus, then you might come to Him as an an inspiring example or a great leader, a great and clever teacher. But you'll never come to Him as Savior, as Son of God, as King. You will never know Him like that. You will never connect with the real Jesus. But it begins with recognizing your need. And I've had conversations with folks I know that from, from the outside of Christian faith looking in, and they'll say things like this. You know, it seems like, in many ways, Christianity is just kind of this crutch for weak people. You've, you, you've heard that line. like, And that, that as I observe people come to faith in Jesus, for many of them it seems like it comes at this point where there's this incredible life crisis, and they're at the end of their ropes, so they turn to Jesus. And, yeah, that's the way it actually happens a lot. Because there's something about having to get to that point in life where we realize we are at the end of our own rope that we will finally turn and hear the voice of Jesus. And many people, and maybe many of you, first came to faith at that kind of juncture in life where you knew that Jesus was the only hope that you had. But one of the things that you find over the years of walking with Jesus is you never really leave that place. Now, the crises might not seem as acute and as big as they did early on in your walk in faith. We all have different uh, severe crises that come at different periods in our life. But people walking with Jesus over the long haul, maybe you've known folks like this, where you look at them and they seem to have this just incredibly deep trust in Jesus. But at the same time, they have this incredibly deep sense of how much they need God every day for everything. I May mean, have started out in their life for that moment of huge crisis when they were at the end of the rope, and they come to realize over the years they need Jesus for every breath. <laughs> that there's no point in the day in which they can stand on their own and say, I have got this all together, and I can stand in my own holiness, I can stand in my own ability, I can make my life work, none of it. That over time, we see this point of crisis is one that we're always living in. Are we going to live by faith, trusting in Jesus or continue to try to camp out in our own meager resources that just don't live up to the job. See, this first part of turning to faith is recognizing our need. Second thing we see here is that we must listen to His voice, and we see that very literally here. Jesus speaks to this woman. He says, "Turn around, come. Who who was it that touched me? Come here." And for Jairus, he hears Jesus speaking to him, "Don't be afraid. Only believe." And for us here in scripture, we too hear the voice of God speaking to us. Will we listen? Will we believe? There is no way to move from fear to faith unless we listen to the voice of God as he speaks to us. Third thing, be that we learn from those around us. That We're not in this together. You see what brought this woman to Jesus in the first place? She heard reports about Jesus, that he was this incredible healer, and that convinces her to come. And then Jairus knows Jesus' reputation, so he comes to Jesus as his last-ditch effort. And then when Jairus is in the middle of this moment of crisis, when his daughter has died, and Jesus speaks to him, and he says, Just believe. Where is he going to get a picture of that belief? Mark is doing something. He's using a literary technique that the commentaries actually call this as sort of pedestrian as it sounds. It's the Markin Sandwich. And in the Mark and Sandwich, it happens periodically in the book of Mark, Well, you're ha- well you'll have a, a story that's, that's interwoven together, that it'll begin with one thing, it'll shift to something else, and it'll come back. Okay, so we've got bread on both sides of the story of uh, Jairus, and the jam in the middle is the woman who is being healed. And that, that literary technique focuses us, Mark wants it to focus us on the, on the moment of change for this woman. You see, she turns when she hears Jesus' voice. And what does she find out in response? What does she hear from Jesus next when she says, I'm the one. And she tells the truth. She hears Jesus say this to her. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Faith at work right there. Turning away from fear and into trust in Jesus. And so when we get to Jairus, Jesus says, just trust me. It's like he's saying that. Like he's saying this. Like she did. Do you see what she just did? You do the same thing. Trust me. You can trust me. We, like Jairus and this woman, must learn from those around us. As we hear the stories of God's goodness in other people's lives, as we hear others speak to us and remind us of the truth of Scripture, that we need to hang on. Because God is hanging on to us that he will show up, that he will bring whatever we need. We learn from those around us. And then finally, recognize your need, listen to his voice, learn from those around you. And then finally, trust his timing. As you walk through the story, if if you're really thinking or reflect a little bit, you you see how seemingly backwards Jesus' priorities are here? I mean, both these are incredibly serious situations. But on the one hand, you've got this woman who has a chronic disease. She's been suffering for 12 years. And it is horrible. And it is meant for us to feel that way. But we have to say this, right? You can suffer for one more hour. Because we've got this other girl who is on the verge of death. You see, you've got a chronic problem in immediate life-threatening danger. And if Jesus were like any uh, doctor, he would say, okay, hold on a minute, I'm going to be right back, and let me go take care of this first, because she's about to die. And Jairus knows that. He comes and he grabs Jesus, and Jesus says, I'll come with you. And then before they take ten steps, what happens? The crowd's pressing around, and Jesus stops. he says, who touched me? You can imagine, Jairus, who cares who touched you? (laughs) My daughter is at home dying. And Jesus takes his time with this woman. And by any other accounting, Jesus' sense of timing is all wrong. And it proves itself to be. He stops with this woman and, and, and he does take advantage of this moment to provide what maybe no other moment would have for her a public recognition of her healing, that everyone would know that she is now clean, that she might come back into the community of her people, that she might come into a personal encounter with Jesus right then and there. So he stops for it, and he turns, and it's suddenly too late. Because the daughter has, in fact, died. You see, his worst fears, Jairus' worst fears are realized. Jesus, if you don't come, if you don't come right in the nick of time, all will be lost. And he doesn't. He doesn't heal his dying daughter. And yet, at that very moment, he turns to him and says, still, don't fear, believe. What about for you and I? Those places in life where we struggle and God's timing seems to be so incredibly off. Where is that for you right now in your life? Where does it seem that God must have forgotten you, that he's hiding, that he won't show up in time? Maybe you look around and you're giving it your best, but your marriage just isn't improving fast enough and you don't know if you can hang on. Maybe your job search is dragging on too long, well past when you were supposed to have a job on your own calendar. Maybe your biological clock is ticking and God just doesn't seem to care. Where is Jesus moving too slowly for you? Will you learn to trust his timing, even in that. Because again, you see, we are people who always live in our need for Jesus. We are at every moment faced with situations, big and small, where we must turn away from our fears and follow him in faith, even when we have no idea what he is doing, just as Jairus certainly didn't. Jairus isn't left there, and this woman's not left needing to be healed. The third thing we see here is the thing that makes all the difference, the touch of the king. The touch of the king. Uh, Elizabeth and I watched a a movie this week called The Invention of Lying. Some of you might have seen this. Let me tell you a little bit about the story. The the setup of this movie is uh, that this kind of an alternate universe that looks just like ours, except that humankind has never developed the ability to lie. Nobody can say anything that is not true. And most of them seem uh, just unable to not only not say a lie, but keep themselves from saying the truth, even at the most socially unacceptable moments. Uh, it's so much so that there's no fiction. There, there are no made-up movies in their world, because that's too, much clo- that's too close to a lie. Instead, movies are uh, these, these scenes. You go sit down in the theater, and you watch a guy sitting in a chair, very respectable, reading a transcript of a historical event. And, and that was sort of their entertainment. Uh, it means that there was no real advertising the way we think about it. They're standing out on the... <laughs> apologize to my brother-in-law who's in that business. But uh, sorry, you're out of a job. There's, uh, they're standing out on the street corner and a bus comes by. You know how buses have the, the placards on it? So a bus comes by and there's a, a sign on it and it says, Pepsi, for when they don't have Coke. <laughs> But, but this world with no, <laughs> this world with no line, it, I mean, it, it finds its, its sort of sharpest commentary here. In this world, in this movie, there is no religion of any kind because there's no lie. And there's nothing to be said. And so this ma- the, the main character in this movie, he somehow, in, the, in a moment of desperation, he, his, uh, his brain sort of rewires and he figures out how to say something that's not true. And then he keeps doing it, and everyone takes him at face value because there's no such thing as lying. And then one of the most poignant scenes in the movie, he's sitting in the hospital next to his mother who is dying of a heart attack. And the doctor comes up and says she's not going to live through the night. And she begins to talk to her son, and she says, I am so scared because when I die, there is nothing, just oblivion, no more existence. It is all over. And he just sits there with the weight of that reality. And then you see his eyes kind of light up. And he says, Mom, that's not true. It's not true. When you die, you are going to go to a beautiful place. And when you go there, everyone you've ever loved will be there too. And you will be happy. And you'll be able to run like you did when you were a kid. And everyone there gets their own mansion. And she smiles, and she closes her eyes, and she passes away. He looks up, and the doctor and three nurses are standing there looking at him, and they say, tell us more about this place. And he becomes instantly worldwide famous as this man who has this word from above that there is hope, and everyone believes it. And all the time, the punch of this movie is that he's walking around knowing that it is a complete lie. And at the end, as he marries the girl he's supposed to marry, he admits the lie and walks away from it, leaving this empty world, devoid of hope. What's different in this story? As these people face this trap of fear, and as they instead make this turn to faith, what makes the difference for them? The touch of Jesus. Not just this word from above that may or may not be true. Not just this pie in the sky hope. Not just this um, irrational belief that maybe there's some good guy up there that's going to take care of me in the end. Instead, what do they see? Jesus. God himself in the flesh. Who comes down into this little village. And walks straight into the catastrophe of these two lives. In order that he might bring the healing touch of God himself to work here. She reaches out and touches the hem of the garment. And she gets what she wants. She's healed. But then she finds out that Jesus actually wants so much more for her than just that. Because Jesus doesn't let her slink off into the crowd. He says, who touched me? And when she turns and comes and tells him the truth, it is then that she hears these words. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. See, she came wanting an anonymous healing. And Jesus came wanting to encounter this woman and change everything for her. Not just send her away with a healing, but send her away with an entire new life that has come into contact with God himself. And for Jairus, he too, as he comes in his desperate need, comes looking for Jesus to come and say the word over his daughter and heal her, Jairus doesn't get what he asked for. Did you notice that? Jairus came to Jesus because he had a sick daughter that he wanted Jesus to heal. And Jesus doesn't. Instead, she, like the woman, gets so much more than she asked for. He came seeking healing. And instead, Jesus comes and gives resurrection. New life. This girl raised from, raised from the dead, not simply healed of what had sickened her. Camper and I occasionally quote from uh, our kids' Bible, the, the storybook Bible that we both use with our families. Um, And this scene is uh, one of the most powerful in that whole Bible. I can't laugh that we cry every time we read this. But here's what happens when Jesus comes into the room of this little girl. It says this. Jesus walked into the little girl's bedroom and there lying in the corner in the shadows was the still figure. Jesus sat on the bed and he took her pale hand. Honey, he said, it's time to get up. And he reached down into death and gently brought the little girl back to life. The girl woke up, rubbed her eyes as if she'd just had a good night's sleep, and she leaped out of bed. It made the difference for this woman, for Jairus, and for this girl. They come and find not just comforting words from Jesus, but the touch of Jesus coming in, breaking into their lives, and making everything different. And when we turn in faith to Jesus, whether the first time or at every moment in our lives as we need him, we find that Jesus also. Not, some, not simply something that Jesus provides, some service that he's intent to give us, but we find Jesus himself, intimate, personal connection with him. That is what God has come to bring us in the person of Jesus, more even than we are asking for, more than we bargain for. It's what happens for Jairus this bleeding woman for Jairus' daughter, and it's what Jesus comes and brings us to. Let me close with this, with, with these words from Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says this to the church, to people like us, people in need of this kind of faith and this kind of hope. He says this, I pray that out of the glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, According to his power that is work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul ends praising God because he says this God is able to do more than all we ask or imagine. He comes to bring us himself. And he does it. And he calls us to turn continually away from our fears in faith the one who has us in his hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so tender with our fears and that you don't abandon us to them and you don't reject us because of them, but you call to us. Come out and grab a hold of us. You did that so tenderly with this woman, with Jairus, with his daughter. Would you continually do that with us? Lord, help us even in the grip of our fears to look to you, to listen to your voice, to be encouraged by those around us and to trust you in your often strange and difficult timing. Help us say in those moments, you are God and we are not and we will trust you. Meet us, we ask. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.